Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is international best-selling author Kyle Mills. Kyle is the number one New York Times best-selling author of, I believe now, 19 books, including the forthcoming novel in Vince Flynn's Mitch Rapp series, which is entitled Lethal Agent. In addition to several novels in the Robert Ludlum universe, Kyle writes his own best-selling series about a beleaguered FBI special agent, Mark Beeman. He grew up in Oregon, Washington, D.C., and London as the son of an FBI agent, so Kyle absorbed an enormous amount about the intelligence community that would later I hope provide his novels their unique and spellbinding authenticity. And Kyle's also an avid outdoorsman, which I expect has come in handy for Agent Beeman and, and Mitch Rapp more than once. Kyle, welcome to Writers on the Beat. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. No, no the pleasure is is absolutely all mine. I I know that uh, the the Red War is going to be coming out in paperback pretty soon, and your publisher's getting ready to launch the next Mitch Rapp novel, uh, the Lethal Agent. I think it's currently on pre-order for like a September 24th release. And I actually got a, a pretty good laugh a few months ago um, over on, on Twitter when one of the uh, online Mitch Rapp fans uh, was trying to guess the name of the new book and came up with, uh, make sure I read it right here, uh, Danger Sauce, a Mitch Rapp cookbook by Kyle Mills. I that one. Yeah, I'm going to have to work that out one of these days. <laughs> yeah, there's there's obviously the, the market is demanding it, right? Um, yeah, well, a few Middle Eastern recipes, maybe. Yes. Uh, what uh, what would you like readers to know about this uh, this installment, Lethal Agent, and the in the continuing Mitch Rap legacy? Well, you know, Mitch has been around for a long time. I think this might be the nineteenth book in the series. And don't quote me on that, but the. Uh, about a CIA, uh, I guess you could call him an assassin. That's probably what he'd have on his business card. Mm -hmm. And this one is uh, the fifth I think I've written in the series um, since Vince Flynn passed away. Um, and this one relates to a biological threat, which is something that Mitch has never had to face before and doesn't actually know that much about. And I think it's kind of fun to throw new things at him Yes. Uh, that he hasn't done before, uh, new challenges. So he has to not only fight virus, uh, but germs, which he uh, was excited. So what was your research process like for this and coming up with this this new threat? I would imagine you probably don't have a bunch of biotech, uh, biochemical weapons books laying around the shelves. A few. I, I'm kind of a scientist. <laughs> you know, and... Um, that's actually why I ended up writing a, Ludlum, a few of the Ludlum novels. It was the, the lead character was a, uh, a microbiologist. And the Ludlums had read some of my books that were very science oriented. So I ended up getting that job. So this was a fun way to uh, get the science for my fascination with science and biology in there. Um, and honestly, it it's something... And fans send me a lot of mail, and it's one that's really come up a fair amount in uh, in fan mail that uh, they'd really like to see, you know, Mitch go up against a bio threat because it's not something he'd done before. Oh, when you uh, you obviously have a, a very different um, or a, 
background very different from writing before you before you started doing this professionally and, and as a full-time uh, full-time author but when did you first want to write and and when did you first i guess more importantly realize that you could write and that people might actually want to read what you had to say oh man it was a long time ago i was probably 28 or 29 um and though to be honest with you i I never really thought about making a career as a writer. Um, it was more of an interesting creative exercise. So uh -huh. I worked for a bank and I, my background, educational backgrounds in economics. Um, and I was a really fanatical rock climber back then. And that's all I did really. I worked at the bank and then I climbed and I thought it'd be really fun to, you know, do something creative. I'd always admired creative people. So, uh -huh. I actually decided I was going to build furniture, um, but my wife reminded me that I wasn't very handy. <laughs> and I don't know she she didn't really want me to fill the garage with uh, with tools. I think we live in Wyoming and it snows a lot. She like parking yes. in the garage, so yeah. she said, "Well, you love to read. Why don't you write a book?" And I mean, this was long enough ago that we didn't even have a computer in the house. So wow. instead of buying a book table saw, I bought a computer. And a bunch of books on how to write a novel and uh, wrote my first book, Rising Phoenix. Now, in looking at looking at your, your background, one of the recurring themes of this show, this podcast, is, is that it only takes about a decade of work to become an overnight success. Um, and it it looks like you really got to to jump to the front of the line if if I'm reading your bio right with that with Rising Phoenix. Can you talk about what that was like from you know, first word to, to, to published uh, author? Yeah. I mean, I, I had done the same thing everybody does with trying to find an agent. You know, once I finished the book, you know, some people read it and that, um, that I trusted and people thought it was really good. And, and so I thought, well, I'll try to get an agent and publish it. And, and, you know, that's really, kind of a heart-rending thing to do. I got a million rejections just like everybody. And finally, I did land an agent and he sold it really quickly. Um, and then the book kind of got rushed uh, because, and, and I got a little lucky because uh, a book that they had spent, a, the publisher had spent a lot of money on got delayed and they had this slot um, that had, you know, a fair amount of push behind it. And no book. And oh, wow. editor said, well, you know, I just got this book and it's in pretty good shape. We just need to edit it up and we can shove it in that slot. So, um, I, you know, as a new author, I got a pretty decent push, you know, for a fair amount of books printed and, uh, you know, a, a decent amount of publicity. And the book, uh, you know, was well received by fans and, and went on to become a national bestseller. So, yeah, I, w I was kind of in the right place at the time with the right book. Absolutely. Right yeah, the, the, the stars were aligned for you that month. <laughs> <laughs> they really were. Yeah. Now, do you, do you remember the first thriller that you ever read? Oh, the first one. I mean, I started reading thrillers when I was just incredibly young um, because my parents had a ton of books in the house, but we didn't have a lot of kids' books. So I just sort mm -hmm. of graduated to them probably 
you know, I probably start where I started with Stephen King, maybe, if you'd call those thrillers. Um, when, well, depending I mean, on the book, back, yeah. Yeah, back, I mean, that would have been really early, like Salem's Lot or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, when I was probably eight years old or something. So. That's a good typical eight year old book. <laughs> uh, I, I remember in my seventh grade book report was Shogun. And, uh, <laughs> I, I read the book. I loved it. And I, you know, it was long. So I just finished it mm-hmm. right before the book, the book report was due. And then I realized there was a two and uh, I had to, I had to get an extension. But yeah. It started reading those, you know, with Ludlum and I mean, Le Carre and, and Higgins and I mean you know later on Tom Clancy I, I'm just a huge thriller reader as a kid. Now you've taught um, at least on on uh, some of your previous interviews or in, and on your uh, on your website about how uh, Severe of Influence is your best novel. Now the the cover that's depicted on your website features a quote from Tom Clancy and uh, I had to do an unrealistic amount of digging to find out or to find what I think is probably that featured quote because the, the resolution wasn't good enough for me to blow it up. Uh, what I what I came up with has Tom referring to you as the new master of gripping and intelligent page turners. Um, listeners to this podcast know that Hunt for Red October was the first thriller I ever read and it totally hooked me for life in this genre. So I know how ridiculous I would be if I had a Clancy quote like that on the cover of one of my greatest accomplishments. So I'm, you know, just kind of asking for a friend, but is there an oversized blow up of that cover with Tom's quote on it, hanging behind ballistic glass somewhere in your house, maybe about the size of a ceiling? You know, my wife did one. It was uh, kind of like, yeah, it was an ad from the New York times. They, they did a full page ad in the New York times at one point and it had, I think it had that quote with Tom and a, and his signature on it. And uh, I think I do have that behind glass somewhere. I don't think I, I think I don't have it hung <laughs> up. It seemed a little weird, but it, but it is yeah. sort of like your college degree. You, it, yes. it's, it's in a closet somewhere. Yeah. Well, the, the, uh, the cover has, uh, the quote has since been replaced probably since Tom's death uh, from uh, with, with one from the Washington post. So that's truly a keeper. You should hang on to that. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Tom what's, was really good to me, actually. Yeah, you know, I I I was just so amazed with with his writing, and um, you know, his his style was was so different. The detail was so different. I mean, it just it was, um, it was just intoxicating to read his books. I mean, you for me, I, I you know, you truly kind of forgot you were reading and turning pages, and then it's like three o'clock in the morning. I mean, it's that that experience that we all shoot for, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I really feel like Tom is kind of uh, another level. I mean, really amazing. And you mm-hmm. mentioned sphere of influence, and I said, that, you know, my goal, lit- literally, when I wrote that book, was this is going to be my Cardinal of the Kremlin. You know, wow. I mean, whereas Tom wrote about you know technical stuff and geopolitics, I wanted to do something that was more about you know the nature of crime and mm-hmm. and sort of moral ambiguity. Um, mm-hmm. But that that was my kind of my stated goal because I, I thought Cardinal was perhaps the best thriller ever written. So um, and it's if you look at it, it's funny too. If you look at it compared to all my other books, it's much much longer. So I even <laughs> I even emulated Tom on that. Now the uh, one of the 
one of the folks that I, I, I follow in a kind of a philosophical sense, um, Elizabeth Gilbert, the, the author of Eat, Pray, Love, did a, a TED talk about genius. And I'll, I'll have to oversimplify it here in the interest of time, but she revealed in this TED talk how she tries not to pressure herself to outdo past accomplishments. And I think that one wild success, that one book I think was like her 20th book. Um, and so she tries to take her her ego out of the equation by either crediting or blaming this amorphous out-of-body genius entity for the success or failure of her work. Uh, how do you deal with the pressure to live up to past successes and this, you know, yardstick you've set for yourself with sphere of influence? I, you know, I don't know that I think of, I don't know that I think of my books as one being, you know, better than another. I mean, it's a, Sphere was something that I wanted to accomplish. And at the end of it, I thought I had, I, I'd gotten where I wanted to go with that mm -hmm. book. And it was an ambitious book for me. But on the other hand, I wrote a general fiction novel too, which was really hard for me. It didn't really have any crime or anybody shooting. It was about the tobacco industry. So that to me was a separate challenge, you know, and yeah. for me, every book is like that. There's some new challenge and I don't know that they would necessarily be obvious to a reader. Mm -hmm. Pretty every book I've ever done, there was something I was tackling and, you know, wanting to uh, achieve. So I, yeah, I think it would drive you crazy if you, if you, really tried to rate your work because at some point, you know, you do two that you didn't think were that good and you'd go, <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, I'm getting worse or I've lost it or something, which is not the case. Yeah. Uh, uh, transitioning to, to guys, uh, authors who, who kill themselves when they feel they're no longer relevant. Uh, Hemingway uh, famously <laughs> said that, uh, you know, writing is never finished. It's only ever abandoned. Um, at, at the end of every one of, of my books, I, I always feel like I've given everything I have, left it all on the table, right? There, there's nothing substantial left to do with this work. Then, you know, a few months, maybe, you know, a few years later, I, I look back and I, I'm really tempted to, to tinker. Um, are, are there any of your books that you still hold in the same perfect esteem as that day you sent them off for publication? Or do you look back and be like, man, I should have tweaked this little thing? No, you know, I'm totally the opposite. I it's, it's a little embarrassing sometimes. I finish a book and then I forget it. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just gone yeah. to me and I'm 100% I'm focused on the next one. And why it's embarrassing is sometimes I'll have, you know, I'll be doing uh, you know, a speech and I'll have a Q&A and somebody will bring up something that happened in a book and I'll say I have no recollection of that at all and be like, it was the last book. I mean, you just finished it. <laughs> And it's just gone. Like, it's almost like I can't, I bring finite size and I yeah. can only hold one story in it at a time. So, I mean, with the Mitch Rapp stuff, it's, I can't completely do that because it's an ongoing saga. Yes. Um, but I have to look back at my notes to remember, you know, what did I do here um, in the past? And, you know, particularly with that universe that goes back, I mean, all the way to when he was in college. Yeah, it's you. You have to beware that creative etch a sketch. You can't shake it too much, right? Yeah, and you know it's funny. I remember the stuff Vince did with Mitch Rapp better than I remember the stuff I did because you know I studied it. Mm, yeah. And then when I yeah. wrote it, you know, I write it and then I forget it. So um, I have to at the end of every book, I have to spend a day going through it and and 
writing down all the things I changed or, you know, new backstory or anything like that, or if somebody changed a weapon or got a new car or anything like that. I have to, have to go back and take notes on it. Now, uh, Brad Taylor and I talked a, a few months ago about the, the similarities between the, the espionage and the, and the police uh, procedural subgenres, which is a lot of the reason I like having guys like, like Brad and, and you on the show to share expertise with the rest of us. Um, for me, espionage thrillers like yours and Brad's are, are just mystery or, or a lot like mystery, uh, murder mysteries and police procedurals and that, you know, they need a specific crime or intent, a, a band of bad guys and this, you know, merry union of saviors who are, you know, willing to risk themselves for people they've never met. When you're putting your stories together, do you typically start with the, the crime and the criminals aspect of what you want them to try to get away with or the heroes and what you'd like to see them accomplish? Maybe, with maybe one exception, um, it always starts with the crime. I, I'm really fascinated with bad guys. So, and, and the, the idea particularly that in the current, in the modern world, individuals can gain great power. Yes. Um, and so it always starts with the crime. And actually, the next one I'm going to write is a little bit starting with a set, uh, like a potential crime. But, uh, but yeah, no, typically I've come up with a bad guy. I have their entire plot and goal and evil on my head. And then to me, that's the natural way to write a book because, you know, the, the police or the CIA or whatever, they, they don't do anything until there's a crime. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's not entirely true, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Generally, and yes. So, yeah, I mean, to, to, they're out there to prevent crime, but it, but it to me, it was always, well, the crime happened. Now, whatever group it would be, if, you know, initially when I was writing, it was about the FBI. I said, okay, here, the crime has happened. What would the FBI do about that? And it makes, for me, it makes it much easier. You know, it's it's, planning a crime, sometimes a very elaborate crime, and creating a reaction to it that's typically realistic. You know, I, you can do a lot of research into these organizations and get a pretty good idea what the FBI or CIA would do in a given situation. You can ask them. Uh, I've um, also talked with in, with Brad and, and Ian Rankin and a few others about the concept of, of rough justice and its almost requisite presence in thrillers and for thriller readers that um, I, I know how I feel about rough justice in, in fiction as, as a recently retired cop. I wonder if you have any idea what your special agent dad thought about you giving your readers what they wanted, making sure that the bad guy really gets everything that's coming to him on the pages. <laughs> You know, my early books weren't as much like that. Um, so they were a little bit more investigative. Um, and it's really been more current in my current career, particularly with the mid-trees, that, uh, that they've become a little rougher. Um, I don't know. You know, I mean, for instance, the... the the torture side uh, of the Mitch Rapp thrillers. I mean, there's mm -hmm. always been some pretty, pretty rough in, interrogations. And yes. I would say that my father was fairly strongly opposed to um, that kind of thing. Uh, I didn't feel like it was effective or necessary, mm -hmm. but 
the context of the story, um, you know, it's exciting and, and I think it's cathartic if you, uh, for readers, if you have a really horrible, um, I, I think using those kind of interrogation tests are maybe not as effective as, as they're just, you know, they're depicted in, in books, not, not as easy. Yeah, I, I wrote a, uh, a book that came out last year called The Misery Merchant that's about uh, sex, uh, domestic minor sex trafficking. And the, the bad guy in this book, um, very much you know, like real life, um, kidnaps juvenile girls um, and enslaves them as, as prostitutes, which is all realistic. And at right. the end of the book, some of the feedback I got from my betas was like, well, it's great that they caught this guy, but he didn't get what he deserved. Like the level of hatred they had for this guy did not allow them to just see him, you know, arrested and jailed and imprisoned. Right. It was, uh, it was like, I left them hanging. Well, that's good though. I mean, clearly you created a character that people hated and that, I mean, that's it, right. You want to create characters mm -hmm. people love or they hate you. You wouldn't want them to feel indifferent. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, my, my original series character was an FBI agent and, um, definitely not uh, involved in that kind of stuff. I mean, he he wanted to solve the crime. He's a little Sherlock yes. Holmes, like you know, wanted to solve the crime and put the guy behind bars. Is is was the goal. So a little uh, different than yeah. what I do now. Uh, how you know, Mitch Rapp doesn't have to present evidence. <laughs> you know, yeah, he so you know, it makes life up. a lot easier. Yeah, there's there there is no trial. Yeah, yeah, but there's not going to be a trial. Yeah. I wonder what your what your actual research process is like, and and how that has changed, if at all, or how your access to resources has changed since you've achieved bestseller status and have become a pretty well known author. You know, I don't know that that had has had that much an effect. I think, like almost everybody, my process has evolved because when I started the internet didn't really exist. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough to have a lot of contacts in uh, law enforcement, CIA and military, because that's the world I grew up in. Mm -hmm. um, because of my father being an FBI agent and, and later the legal attaché of the United Kingdom. So um, that was easily easy for me. Uh, you know, characters, a lot of times the characters were just people I knew or, you know, had known over the years and, and I could always pick up a phone and ask how things worked. Um, you know, enter the internet and the internet has become so sophisticated. I, I would say I've moved away from that a little bit in favor of the internet because the internet's so easy and it's mm -hmm. so yeah. grand it in, in what yeah. it encompasses, you know, I mean, doing research on, you know, even bio threats, you know, I mean, I can go back in the history of, you know, every plague and, and, you know, look at the breakdowns of how things worked and, and all that. I mean, it's more than you can get from any individual. Now, I'm going to ask you to kind of do my job here in that you've been doing interviews for a really long time. And I wonder what one thing is, uh, or one thing that you might have always hoped you'd be asked, but never are, or, anything that you might want to talk about, but no one on this side of the mic ever asked you about it? You know, I think something that, that people don't ask you about, um, 
and that I think a lot of people would like to hear is what an incredibly torturous process writing books is. Yes. You know, I've been doing it forever and I think people think, well, it's easy for you. You know, you're, you're a best, you're, you're a New York Times bestseller. You've written 20, right? You, yeah. After 20, this just means something you just jot off while you're, you know, watching Game of Thrones, right? Right. And, you know, it's never gotten easier. So, yeah. Um, it kind of makes me, it always reminds me of a saying a bike racer, Greg LeMond, once said, which was, it never gets easier. You just go faster. And that's kind of the way it is. So, for all, there that think this is horrible this is so hard or I'm stuck or whatever you know we all feel that way it's it, it's no different yeah you know it's a, it is definitely the uh, the loneliest thing I've ever done yeah it is and you know it's it's not it's not for everybody I I, I had a friend a good friend in college who really wanted to be a writer I did you know I didn't I assumed I'd go the financial industry and he did it and was successful with it but hated it and ended up going uh going to work in a more traditional business because because of that he was a social guy liked people and um you know living in your basement and in your head all day every day is not for everybody and also the fact that there's nobody pushing you to I, I think that bothers people too you know i have one deadline a year and otherwise nobody ever bothers me. Nobody calls me. People think uh, people call you all the time, right? They don't. <laughs> I, you know, until about a week before it's due, I don't really hear from people. So you have to, you have to have that desire to go, you know, down in your basement, which is where I work and mm -hmm. uh, bang away. So I had just, you know, it's, it, it's simple as, as uh, I think it was also Hemingway said that, uh, you know, you just sit at a typewriter and bleed, right? It's just, it's easy. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you, to, to me, the characters feel very real. So I don't feel mm -hmm. quite as alone as maybe yes. some people do. You know, I feel like, well, I'm with Mitch and Scott and the guys and, and, and I feel like I'm part of their, their band. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I, I, uh, some writers or a lot of writers, you know, that talk about struggling with like writer's block and I kind of have the opposite problem. Um, you might've noticed I talk a lot, but um, <laughs> I, I don't have any issue with sitting down and, you know, typing, you know, 10, 11, 12,000 words in a day. But in order to do that, I, I've got, you know, my headphones in, I'm listening to music typically that's um, whatever my point of view character would listen to. And I, I disappear into this world, right? But it, it, I disappear so completely that at least a couple times a day, uh, my, my wife will come in to, to do something really great and wonderful for me, like refill my coffee. And I have this like panic attack because, you know, from all my cop training, right? Like I'm disappeared in this world and now I'm being snuck up on, like I'm about to be murdered <laughs> by this anonymous person who's walked into, you know, all the way deep into my house. Um, and, you know, it's... Um, yeah, it's it, it, that part uh, I can do without, but it doesn't seem to be good. Right. But you have to inhabit the world, you know, you have to inhabit those characters that they never feel real. You know, they're not real to you. They're certainly not going to be real to anybody else. Uh, do you have a, a favorite fictional detective or a crime show? 
I mean, it sounds really obvious, but Sherlock Holmes, I loved those stories and I loved the complex deduction of it all. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, again, those were, that was more my early career. I had a guy who was a little bit more like Sherlock Holmes, kind of him sitting around thinking about stuff. Um, and I've evolved more into action, but um, I always loved that character. And, and, and honestly, if you think about crime show, I'd get the same thing because uh, I don't know if people remember it. It was a long time ago, but a guy named Jeremy Brett played Sherlock Holmes for a while. And to me that he brought life to that character. Um, yeah. I loved that show. Now, this last question, or I guess keep, keeping that last answer in mind for this last question, which I, I ask of everyone mostly because it's fun for me, but God forbid it should come to pass, Kyle, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, would you want Mitch Rapp, Mark Beeman, or Sherlock Holmes working the case? Oh, that's, that is, that's a tough one. I think, I think I'd have to pick Sherlock because uh, Mitch would just start shooting people <laughs> But just get under off. Maybe we can have a a, a Holmes rip a Holmes rap task force. Yeah. yeah, that that might be that would probably be the best of both worlds there. All we need is a time machine to make that happen. <laughs> so where can readers connect with you? Maybe find a, a blog or a newsletter and, and stay up to date on your releases and uh, the the outcoming Lethal Agent and the uh, the paperback for Red War. Uh, just bitfiles.com and you can get on there tons of information on my books on Vince's stuff and uh, sign up for newsletters or connect with me on Twitter, Facebook all that you can find out all that on there I greatly appreciate you making time to, to join us today Kyle and I am indebted to you It was my pleasure thanks for having me You've been listening to Writers on the Beat where Crime Writers Meet Crime Fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been international best-selling author Kyle Mills. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.